This morning's scripture, Romans the 11th chapter, first five verses. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah and how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would help enlighten us on a very difficult chapter as we start this chapter 11 of this beautiful book of Romans. And Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the depths of your words, Lord, and what Paul penned so many years ago. And Father, I pray that you give me an understanding to be able to convey it to your listeners, and that through it all, you may be glorified. For it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So last week, we finished up chapter 10, and this week we shall begin to look at chapter 11. And I suppose the good news is there are only six chapters left, right? That's right. I looked back to see exactly when we began this book of Romans, and it was actually June 16th of 2019. So we are over two years into this book, and we've made it through ten chapters. But I hope that you have enjoyed it as much as I have. I think it's been very enlightening. I told you and warned you early on that it would cause us to stretch our minds, to expand our understanding, and uh, challenge us unlike any book that we've ever been through or unlike any book that you will ever study. There's no other book that has more gold in it than this book, in my opinion. And it does a wonderful job of teaching us about who we are and understanding who we are, as well as teaching us about who God is and how God deals with people and with all of us. And we've seen that play out through these first 10 chapters. And as we've looked over the last couple of months, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are a group. And in this group of chapters... Paul has dealt with the Jews and where they are in God's overall scheme of things and where they've been and what's yet to be in store for them, if anything. And we've took a great deal of time looking at. And when I say the Jews, Paul's speaking of the genealogical Jews, the the Israelites by DNA. And what's going to happen to them and if there is a promise left for them. And as we entered into chapter 9, you recall we left chapter 8. And chapter 8, as I said, the great 8, the most beautiful chapter in the entire Bible in my opinion, for whatever that's worth. 
But chapter 8 gives us a great number of beautiful promises. If God is for us, then who's against us? And the answer was no one. For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. There's, it's just filled with one beautiful promise after another. And yet, when we roll into chapter 9, there becomes a question in people's minds, or in Paul's mind, precisely. And that question was, where do the Jews fit into all this? Because he's been giving promises to the church and to the Gentiles, but he made a lot of promises to the Jews. And how do they work into this? And we see all the promises in the Old Testament. So the ultimate question then, as we transition from chapter 8 to chapter 9, is if we can't trust God and the promises he made to his people in the Old Testament, how can we trust God and the promises he just made to us in the 8th chapter if God is for us and who can be against us? Or who will bring a charge against God's elect? Or even that beautiful chain of salvation that he paints in verses 29. For those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Beautiful chain. It's a perfect chain. It's unbreakable. No one can interfere with that. But how can we trust that if we can't trust what's in the Old Testament? And that's the question that Paul's dealing with. And we start into chapter 9 is what remains of God's promises to Paul's brothers and sisters genealogically? And how are we going to deal with that? So Paul asked the question, is it that the word of God has no effect? Did God lie in the Old Testament? And those of you that were in the Sunday school class this morning, we dealt with just that. In the sixth chapter of Hebrews, it says, God made an oath because it is impossible for him to lie. We talked about making oaths. Anybody ever made an oath? Now, come on, is anybody in here married? Yeah. You took an oath, you made a vow. And we talked about the importance of that. But why do we need to do it? We need to do it because we lie. If we didn't lie, there would be no need to take an oath or make a vow or do any of those things. But God cannot lie, and yet he basically made an oath in his promise to Abraham that he would make his descendants the number of the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. But we saw that, but we got to see exactly then how are we to understand what's going on. Whenever you have so many Jews and so many Israelites that are outside of the promise. And I made this statement a few weeks ago. If you look at the nation of Israel, they are ungodly. They are outside of every promise right now because they have rejected the Son. And they are as ungodly as an unbelieving American, an unbelieving Arab, whatever the case may be. So make no mistake about that. But from where did they come and is there a future yet for them? And that's the question that we're dealing with. Paul even tells us that God blinded the eyes in part of his brothers and sisters, the genealogical Jews. And in turn, they sought their own righteousness. 
they sought to make up their own righteousness by keeping the law, doing good things. They believed that that would gain them favor with God and eternal life with God. But in the end, we saw that it was only to their folly, and it was as filthy rags. However, those that didn't even seek God, those that didn't even seek righteousness, obtained it. And they obtained it by faith in Jesus Christ, by receiving his righteousness. So Paul has made it crystal clear that salvation is not a matter of what we do or what we say or how we act or what we refrain from doing, but it is a matter of faith in Christ and what he did for us, each and every one of us. And then his righteousness is imputed to us. So up to this point, it seems that the promises of the Old Testament are being fulfilled in the church. It seems, and Paul makes it very clear, that there is a spiritual Israel and there is a physical or genealogical Israel. And Paul spends a great deal of time redefining the term Jew. And he's saying, you're not Jew because you're one outwardly, but instead you're a Jew because you are one inwardly, the circumcisions of the heart, not of the body. And so when we get to this point, the evidence is overwhelming that it is the church that fulfills the place of what was the nation of the Israelites. He tells us that the promises never were meant for the physical nation. That the promises were only meant for the spiritual nation and those who grasp hold of them through faith in Jesus Christ. And I will tell you this morning that there are a great many churches and pastors out there that proclaim that. And will stand by that to this very day. And they will say that There is no future for Israel, that God is done with the genealogical Jews, that the church has taken their place, and all those promises in the Old Testament have been fulfilled and are being fulfilled in the church today, that it was a spiritual promise. I, too, would be in that camp, but for chapter 11. But for this chapter that we started on today, I would definitely be in that camp. And I will tell, would tell you that there is no future promises that are made to Israel, that the promises made are being fulfilled in the church. But we got this chapter that just is a chapter that I have wrestled with. And it would be an easy decision if we could tear it out and throw it away, and then I'd all be good and everything would be clear in my mind. Can't do that. We've got to deal and address chapter 11, and it's a very difficult chapter to try to harmonize that view with the Word of God. I mean, after all, we went through 9, right? We went through 9, and and Paul says we had Ishmael, and we had Isaac, and who did he choose? Isaac. Why did he choose him? Because he was a better guy? No, just because he could. So his choice and election would stand. 
And he says twice, not based upon any good they didn't or, or did do. And so he chose Isaac over Ishmael. And you say, well, Ishmael was illegitimate, you know, he was half Gentile, and we have all that issue going on. Well, then he makes another promise, right? He goes on, and, and he moves on, and who are the two that he compares next? Jacob and Esau. Same mom, same dad, same DNA, identical. But he chose one over the other. Chose one over the other, not based upon anything they did or didn't do, just so that his sovereign choice and election would stand for his eternal purpose. He chose Jacob over Esau. So you see, there is, there is a spiritual group of people through faith in a Savior, which was Jesus to come, and is Jesus that has come. And it is that spiritual group that we see Paul says, God's keeping his promises through. So this whole notion that all these promises are kept through faith makes perfect sense. Esau didn't get the promise. He was a child of the flesh. Jacob was a child of the promise, right? So we see that the promise came through faith. And it did not go to every physical descendant of Abraham. So I hope you can see that there is a very good argument to be made that these promises were spiritual in nature and did not deal with DNA. But as I said, chapter 11 has always been the point of demarcation for me when it comes to believing that God's plan is over with respect to Israel as a nation. So that's where we are this morning as we look at chapter 11 and we begin in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. So Paul has asked this question basically in different ways numerous times through chapters 9 and 10 and here again at the beginning 11. Has God rejected his people? And he says... By no means. And whenever he's speaking of his people, he is speaking of genealogical DNA Jews, Israelites. And so, may it never be, is Paul's response. As an aside, Paul did a wonderful job of building suspense, right? I mean, he is the greatest author whenever he's dealing with suspense because we're going to go through this chapter and we're not going to find till verse 25 the answer to this question. I mean, Paul says it and he answers it, but he's going in circles and you'll see as we go through here how he's really not giving us any more than what we already have. But he does do a great job of keeping us all in suspense. So has God rejected his people? No! By no means may it never be. And why is that, Paul? As in perfect Paul fashion, he answers the question very simply in simple terms. And then he goes on and he defines for us why or gives us the basis and foundation for that answer. He tells us why God has not rejected his people. God has not rejected his people because Paul's one of them. I am one of them, he says. 
I myself am an Israelite, and God has not rejected me. We know that he is a believer in Jesus Christ, that he is a child of the promise, and at the same time, he has Jewish blood pumping through his veins. He says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And you recalled two tribes that existed to form the Jewish nation. You want to know what the other one was besides Benjamin? Two of the twelve continued to exist. Anyone? Anyone? Judah. So you had the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah, and they basically formed the Jewish nation. The other ten tribes were lost after they were taken into captivity, and they actually assimilated with a lot of non-Jewish people, and it's sort of where we get the Samaritans at because... The Benjamites and the, those from Judah, they didn't appreciate the assimilation that happened to the Samaritans, and they didn't get along. We know that, and that was part of the reason why. When they were taken captivity into Babylon, they assimilated and lost their Jewish heritage, or so the, the pure Jews thought. So he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I am pure. I am an Israelite. I am a child of Abraham. So God has not rejected his people. It is not as if Paul snuck in when God wasn't looking. And that's what he wanted us to know. I have not been rejected, he says. I am one of them. And so we can't say that God has entirely rejected the Jews because I am a Jew. In the truest sense of the word. And we go to verse 2. God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. That word foreknew should cause something in your mind. Should cause you to go back in time to something that we've covered. Anybody remember what chapter that is from? Eight. You're a quiet bunch this morning. Eight. And we talked about God's sovereign chain of salvation, right? And at the very beginning of that was foreknowledge. I, I foreknew these people or this group of people, and it, it's how salvation comes about. And those he foreknows, he predestines. Those he predestines, he calls. Those he calls, he justifies. Those he justifies, he glorifies. We go to the beginning. Here we go. God has not rejected those he foreknew. So, are we saying that he foreknew everyone here? No. We're not saying that at all. And we'll see how this argument of Paul really doesn't add anything to the ultimate question we are being asked. But he's saying God does not reject, it, does not reject the people that he foreknew. He's saying that he was really no different than Isaac, right? That he was really no different than Jacob. That he is still in that line of faith that he is a child of the promise not a child of the flesh so you see his reasoning really hasn't changed he's not helping us whenever we're trying to make this determination of what's going to happen to Israel because the logic's still being the same he's the same as you and me he's got different DNA in his blood but we've been grafted in we're a child of the promise not a child of the flesh and he came to Christ the same way that all believers come to Christ, through faith, not because of any lineage or heritage that he may or may not have. 
So he's not really helping us a whole lot in this ultimate question. But he's going to again give us an example that again is going to not help us a whole lot in this question either. And he gives us an example from the Old Testament as he did so often times because he's speaking to a group of Jews here and he's wanting them to understand. So the best way to help them to understand is take them to the Old Testament because they know it. So he takes them to 1 Kings and he talks about Elijah. Now Elijah cried out to God to destroy the nation of Israel. And we see him quote Elijah. He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and yet they seek to kill me too. So you have Elijah, wonderful prophet, godly man, and he's saying, I'm the only one that's left in this horrible place, surrounded by horrible people that are doing horrific things. And so basically he's asking God to kill them. He's asking God, wipe them out before they get me because they're coming after me. Yet, what did God do? Did God wipe them all out? Did he destroy all of them? No. Paul asked, but what is God's reply to them? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So here's what God did instead of destroying everyone. He called to himself 7,000 men who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Baal was a false god, and he was thrown upon the Jews and Israelites at that time by King Ahab and Jezebel. Y'all recall those two scurrilous characters. But the people of that day, they claimed to be Israelites. As I've said before, there is a beautiful analogy that's to be made between Israel, the nation, and the church, because so many of their failures are our failures. So let's just keep that in the back of your mind. Don't push it too far, because if you push any analogy that I ever make up, it'll fail, I promise you, all right? But if you just look at it from a distance, you can see the the comparisons between the two. So we had a group of Israelites, and they claimed to be Jews. Oh, sure, they kept up with all the rules that they were supposed to do concerning washings and eatings and their daily routine and all that. But whenever they got pushed by Ahab and Jezebel, they would worship Baal. Whenever they were threatened with their lives, they bowed their knee to Baal. They did not have what it took to be totally devoted to God. And Elijah thought that was everybody in the nation. He knew that they had all sold out. But what Elijah did know that there were 7,000 that had not. Because these 7,000 were hidden away in caves and Elijah didn't know that they existed. 7,000 that God had called to himself. Now I'll say something that may shock you, but I would say there's a lot of relevance to this with respect to the church today. And you look at even though there's a 
small group of people throughout the nation that's probably sitting in church this morning. There's even a smaller group of people that have not bowed the knee to Baal in today's world. We claim, we go to church, we do all the things outwardly that make it look like we're a Christian, but when push comes to shove, when the world tells us what we should be doing, we acquiesce and do what they're telling us to do because we don't want to look like the bad guy, right? Or they try to tell us what it means to love. They've got no idea what it means to love. The definition of love should be defined by us because God is love. He defines love. We should be teaching them what it is to love, but instead we let the world define it for us. And in so doing, we are bowing our knee to Baal in the same way that these Jews in the Old Testament did at that time. God calls out people, a remnant in this case, a remnant from the church. And in that remnant, he, don't, he doesn't want a group of people that are willing to sacrifice whatever, that do not have the courage of their conviction. He wants a group of people that are courageous, that have convictions, that are going to stand on those convictions, come hell or high water. That's what he wants in a church. That's what he wants in a group of people. That's what he demands from us. But yet we sell him short so often and so many times because we want to be liked, because we don't want to be looked at differently we are different and God has called us out to be different we represent him and we are his voice here on earth Christ is coming back for the church and he's not going to come back for a church that lacks courage of its conviction that church is to be pure and white and spotless and beautiful and righteous in every way through Christ And yet we allow it to be tarnished, to be soiled, to be dragged around because we lack the courage of conviction that God has required of his people. The same way he required it of those Israelites that were under the rule of Ahab and Jezebel. He requires it of the church as well. So Paul is saying, remember that situation? God called to himself a remnant. And in that day, at that time, Paul's day and Paul's time, God was still calling to himself a remnant. And Paul was part of that remnant. And so it's still the remnant that is through faith. No other way. And that's what he says. A remnant chosen by grace. Not through works, not through keeping the law, not through keeping the Ten Commandments, none of that. It is a remnant through, chosen by grace, and it occurs through faith in Christ Jesus that perfectly kept the law. We are true Christians and only true Christians when we accept Jesus Christ by faith. Nothing else matters. And it is those true Christians that will refuse to bow the knee to Baal.
It's that simple. So we come to the end of this. He's really not added much to the ultimate question. And that question is, what's going to happen to the Jews? What's going to happen to the nation of Israel? There is a remnant of Jewish believers in Jesus Christ, and there always will be. There's a remnant even today. And that's the point Paul was making. And as I said, I would argue that there is even a remnant of true believers in Jesus Christ in the church. And there's a huge group that just go for ulterior reasons or ulterior motives. But it should be our goal to make sure that we have the courage of our convictions, not to bow our knees to false gods, whatever shape or form they come in, usually in the form of the world that is an unbelieving world in any God, for that matter. But to have the courage and our convictions to say, no, no, it's not going to happen. We're not going to allow the church to go down that road. This isn't our church. God has given us these churches throughout the world, and we are stewards of them. We will be held accountable in how and what we allow to be preached from the pulpit and what we allow and approve of as an entity or an organization, as a church. And it is our job to make sure we take advantage of the burden and the duty that God has given us to maintain the purity and sanctity of the bride of Christ. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious God.